0: Well, turn with me now in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 49. We're continuing our sermon series through the book of Hebrews. We are in chapter 11, and we'll be looking at verses 13 through 16 in a moment. But to understand a little bit of what is happening in Hebrews 11, 13 through 16, we'll first read from Genesis 49, verse 29, down through chapter fifty. Verse 14. So, here at the very end of the book of Genesis, depending on your Bible reading program, this is perhaps something you've read recently or are about to read. Uh, the reading through the, the year that you may be doing, we come here to the end of Genesis. This, this little paragraph, this little section we're going to look at, the end of 49, the beginning of 50, is really the end of the patriarchs, the last of the great three Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So hear now the word of the Lord. Genesis 49, verse 29 through Genesis 50, verse 14. Then he charged them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron the Hittite as a possession for a burial place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife, and there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is there were purchased from the sons of Heth. And when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for him, for such are the days required for those who are embalmed, and the Egyptians mourned for him seventy days. Now, when the days of his mourning were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the hearing of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am dying. In my grave which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. Now therefore, please let me go up and bury my father, and I will come back. And Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. And with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his house, and the elders of the land of Israel, of Egypt, as well as all the house of Joseph, his brothers in his father's house. Only their little ones, their flocks, and their herds they left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great gathering. Then they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan. And they mourned there with a great and very solemn lamentation. He observed seven days of mourning for his father. And when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning of the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a great mourning of the Egyptians. Therefore, its name was called Ebel Mizraim, which is beyond the Jordan. So his sons did for him, just as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan, and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham bought with a field from Ephron the Hittite as property for his burial place. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers, and all who went up with him to bury his father. Amen. Jacob's death is an end of an era. It's the end of the book of Genesis. It's the end of the stories of the three great fathers. The patriarchs who are the foundation of the people of God who live by faith in God. They're the ones who received the promise. The circumcision. They're the ones who lived in the land of promise yet did not possess it. In fact when we come to this little section. This little summary of their achievements, we find that three successive generations together have accumulated out of all the land that was promised them, one cave in a field where they bury their dead. That's it. That's all they have obtained. When the last of the patriarchs dies, they have, of all the land that was promised, a hole in the ground. That's it. Of course, the same thing is true for us. When we spend all our lives acquiring skills and talents and wealth and power, when at last we die, the only thing we truly permanently possess is a hole in the ground, a grave. Generation after generation, they were promised a great nation, a people whose number was like the stars of the heaven and the sand of the seashore. And when Jacob died, there were 70 of them. I don't know if you guys have tried counting the sands of your seashores or the stars of your sky, but even in Cambridge, there are more than 70 stars in the sky. They died in faith, having not yet possessed the promise. And this is precisely what we'll read in Hebrews chapter 11. So turn with me there to Hebrews chapter 11. And we'll read together verses 13 through 16. Hebrews chapter 11 verses 13 through 16. Those who have been following along closely and keeping score will note that as I progress through the book of Hebrews, my sections of scripture from which I preach are growing progressively smaller. And even then... This morning, I found myself thinking, this passage is too big. There's too much in here. But we shall attempt these few verses. Hebrews 11, verses 13 through 16. Here again, the word of the Lord. These all died in faith, not having received the promises. But having seen them afar off, were assured of them Country, Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Amen and amen. What do you think of when one says the word home? Do you think of the home, that house in which you grew up? Do you think of that house in which you raised your children? Do you think of the city or the village, the streets, the parks and playgrounds that were so formative to you, either in your youth or in your children's youth? You've heard many of my stories. You know that for me, home in the core of my being is 500 acres of field and forest on a dairy farm in the Hudson Valley of New York. But of course, home is also for me a little white house that some of you have seen nestled in the edge of the trees. Because on cold winter evenings, after wandering in the woods for hours, I would return to the back door with all the windows lit with yellow light. And I would throw open that door and smell dinner. Hot and moist filled with all the smells and warmth and love of home and my mom was there in the kitchen and my brothers there in the living room or bedrooms and it was home maybe for some of you home is where your friends get together Home is when you reconnect with your college roommates. Home is when you reconnect with those you've loved for a long time, but don't see every day. Here's the tremendous reality that we slowly come awake to in our lives. Nothing here feels like home. They all come close, but they're all not quite there. And there's a reason for this. The good news for us, in fact, this discomfort with everything comfortable here is rooted in good news. We have a home. It's in heaven. The good news for us is that your God is preparing a home for you in heaven. And so we need to live here like home is there. God is preparing a home for you in heaven. So live here like home is there. This in mind, let's look at our few verses together. First, notice that the Holy Spirit says that these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off. These all who died are somewhat debatable. Who are these all? Perhaps it's the names that have gone before, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah. Perhaps it is the names who will come after, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, the people of Israel, the Judges. But whether it is the names before, the names after, or the names altogether found in Hebrews 11, there seems to be a universal experience among believers. That when it says, these all died in faith, it is most certainly our fathers in the book of Genesis. They truly died in faith, not having possessed the substance of the promise. They merely saw it from afar off. And yet we see this throughout the Old Testament. It is also true of Joseph and the sons of Jacob. It is also true of Moses and Aaron and the Israelites, who see the substance of the promise but do not hold it in their hands. And they die in faith when it is still far off. It's certainly true of Israel and the kingdoms of Israel and Judah, who possess the land, who become a great nation, and yet are awaiting something more. And so we can conclude, I think rightly, that it is true of us. That this side of glory, all who live by faith, will in fact Die in faith. Unless Jesus comes again. And that's why we pray. Come quickly Lord Jesus. But should Jesus delay his return. Of this much we can be sure. That those who live by faith. These all. Die in faith. To live by faith. It's to recognize that I will one day, unless Jesus comes, die in faith, not having received the substance of the promise. Now, for our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that meant not actually having the land, and not actually having a great nation. But for our fathers, Joshua, and Moses, and David, and the judges, that meant having the land, And having a great nation. But not having the person and work of Jesus Christ. And for us, it means having the person and work of Jesus Christ. Yet not fully applied. To borrow from the language of John Murray, the 20th century theologian, we can say it this way. Our fathers lived by faith and died in faith... Having the promise made. Spoken. They had but a word. A naked word with no substance. But we now have that word accomplished. They were promised salvation. And that salvation has been accomplished. But it is still being applied. And we live now. Not between the promise made and the promise accomplished, as our fathers did. But we live between the promise accomplished and the promise applied. And so, like our fathers, we live by faith and we die in faith. Let me draw it down more specifically to our experiences. How many of you have experienced resurrection from the dead? We live by faith and we will die in faith. Yes? For we have been promised resurrection from the dead, but I have not been resurrected yet. How many of you have experienced eternal life? We live by faith and we die by faith. I have a word from my Father that I will have eternal life, a home in heaven. I have received that promise. And it has been accomplished in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He's done it. Nothing remains except for me to experience it. And that has not yet happened. And so I live by faith and I will die in faith. Thus we come to the phrase having seen from afar. That Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob saw the substance of the problem, the promise, not the problem. The promise. They saw the reality. To which the word of God. focused, And according to Jesus himself. It wasn't land and it wasn't children. It was him. He says in John's gospel. Abraham saw my day. And rejoiced. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Saw Through the word of God. Through the promises to the person and work of Jesus Christ. While he was yet far off. And so it is with us. That when we live in this world. We should see in water. In the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. The Son of God crucified for sinners. Washing them clean. And adopting them as his own. We should see in the bread and in the cup, the Son of God taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul. That he might be crucified for their sins and give to them his life and his righteousness. That we might see in the scriptures from story to story and song to song, every page pointing to Jesus. That through sacrament and through scripture, we see Jesus Who's not as, as far off as he was for our fathers, but is still not yet here as fully as we would wish. He has come and he has accomplished, but he is coming again. It is with this tension in our hearts, beloved, that we are to live looking through the eyes of this world to the world that is to come. Looking through the sacraments and the scriptures to the Jesus who is making that world that is to come. Who is building it of us and of this world. How do we do that? How do we train our eyes to see Jesus in this world? Working out the world that is to come. Well, we are given three things in this verse. They are assured of the substance of the promise. They embrace the substance of the promise and they confess that they are strangers and pilgrims on earth. Now you can see how this becomes a very long sermon. I will try to hold it in. Number one, they are assured of the substance of the promise. These all died in faith, having received but the word of salvation. Not having it accomplished nor fully applied. And they have seen from afar off the coming of the Christ, and they were assured of them. This assurance is an intellectual thing. They studied the promise. They meditated on the promise. They prayed the promise. They recited the promise to their children. They memorized it together with their families. And in this intellectual application to the promise itself, they grew in their confidence that it is true. You've certainly heard the joke before among us as RPs, right? What is the best argument for psalm singing? Here, sing. The word of God is living and active. It is powerful. You sing God's word, you're going to love God's word. What is the best argument for Scripture? Here, read it, study it, sing it. Invest the mind in it. Dive deep into its truths. You will find it bottomless without limit. You will find it rich and encouraging. You will find all its truths sweet and refreshing. Do you want to be sure of the promises of God? Spend a lot of time with them. Look at them. Study them. Think about them. Pray through them. But secondly, embrace them. Our fathers were assured of the promise by visiting it time and again, by grasping it with their minds, but also with grasping it with their hearts. They embraced these promises. These were truths they loved, realities that they delighted in that awoke their hearts and increased their passion. They occupied a place in their life that motivated, excited, enthralled them. The psalmist, oh, how I love your law, it is my study all the day. I thought of numerous ways to explain this, none of which I'm super happy with. Things about the Boston Red Sox and the Patriots and being excited about all these things that don't matter. That don't matter. But being excited about what does matter. They embrace the promises of God. They embrace the word of God. They understood it and applied their minds to it. And so much more we, friends, should think deeply about the words we have been given. But also should feel passionately about the words we have given In this way, I will turn the attention to the pulpit very recklessly. Boring preaching is a sin. It really is. There must be heart. There must be depth. There must be enthusiasm. There must be tears. There must be an embrace of this truth. This is what I believe. This is what you must believe. This urgency, what they would call long ago, unction. It must be profoundly intellectual, thoughtful. But it must be profoundly fervent as well. And then thirdly, it must be lived. They confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on earth. They took those promises to their minds and understood them. They took those promises to their hearts, and they loved them. And they took those promises to their lives, and they were transformed by them. They said, I am a stranger here on earth. By that, they mean a different nature. I am no longer the old nature that I was, says Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No longer defined by the self. No longer defined by Satan's power over me. Nor sin's control in me. I am a stranger to this earth. Of alien nature. Paul will say it this way. I am a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old is gone. The new has come. And I am now strange. Or estranged. From my old self. Alienated from the sinful and selfish one I once was. But so too I am a pilgrim on earth. That is to say that in whatever experiences I go through, I I walk through this world as one who recognizes all of this is temporary. None of my achievements are permanent. None of my accomplishments are permanent. I, I find it amazing. In fact, it's ticklish and it's also timely. Sorry about that that when great athletes achieve great things in the Olympics or in whatever's happening, you know, this time of year, they will use this word, they have achieved immortality. And I laugh. Are you kidding me? Everyone in the world will forget who won next week. Immortality is short-lived by this definition. Oh, how we pursue the grandeur of this earth. How we pursue that which cannot be held, cannot be kept, wealth that is like liquid, praise that is like a vapor and a gas. Instead of recognizing that according to the word of God, the promise of God, I'm a pilgrim, I'm passing through. Nothing here is permanently mine Now, there are two things that should be drawn out of this in terms of our relationship to this present earth. One is relax your grip. There's nothing here you can keep. There's nothing here that's permanent. Walk around with open hands, receiving from God all your friends, all your family, and all the good things of this life with joy, with gratitude, with thanksgiving, with generosity. Recognizing that it's not yours to squeeze and hold on to. You can't do it anyway. The other is to steward what you are given. Take good care of it. You know why? Because it's not ultimately yours. It belongs to those who come after you. To put it in a literal, if, if a little bit silly way, consider taking care of the pew you're sitting in. Because Lord willing, when you're in the cemetery, somebody's going to be using that. Take good care of this creation, this building, this neighborhood and these people. Because Lord willing, they'll be here living lives. Glorifying and enjoying God here long after you're not here. Be a pilgrim on this earth, recognizing that nothing's permanent and also recognizing That it belongs to those who come after us. Now, can you see how the passage is way too big for me? In this way, we have our principle laid out. The Holy Spirit has told us: all who die who live by faith die in faith, having but the sacraments and the scriptures through which to see Jesus, through which to be assured of Jesus through which to embrace Jesus and through which to find our identity in Jesus. That we should journey through this world not only seeing him from afar but drawing nearer still to him. With this in mind, notice verse 14 that those who say such things that those who say I see Jesus in scripture and sacrament." That those who say, my life is about getting closer to Jesus. Those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. They are seeking permanence, are we not? Abraham wanted a land to call his own. Can you imagine the feelings he was having in Genesis when Sarah died? This his wife. Of all his life, this, the mother of his beloved son of promise, and he needed a place to put her. And he goes before the sons of Heth, those Hittites, those aliens and enemies to the promises of God, and he says, "Will you sell me land, a place to bury my dead? For the promise has not yet come. How hard it is on our hearts. To know that we are seeking something permanent and everything around us breaks in our grasp and there's nothing permanent about it. How hard it is to feel like everyone around us is achieving what their hearts desire and we're not. We declare plainly, we want a homeland. I am seeking something permanent. I am filled with longing, but I do not have it here or now. To obtain this homeland, we are told we have to call our minds away from the country from which we have set out, that they would have opportunity to return. This pattern in verses 14 and 15 is played out throughout the Old Testament. Abraham comes up out of Ur of the Chaldeans, settles in Padam, Iran at the northern tip of Mesopotamia, and comes down into the land of promise. He needs a bride for Isaac. But it needs to be a bride who's a monotheist. It needs to be a bride who's not a Canaanite or a Hittite. With all of those wicked and pagan practices. So he sends his most trusted servant. Probably his heir until Isaac was born. Back to the Don Aram. And this stern warning goes with him. If you can find a godly girl for my son Isaac... Praise God. But if you cannot, Isaac stays here and dies here. He does not go home. When Moses leads Egypt up out of leads Israel up out of Egypt, they wander in the wilderness and they say repeatedly, "Let us go back to the wilderness. Let us go back to where there were leeks and onions. You know, all that yummy food. Where there was all that goodness, you know, slavery and whips and chains and making bricks without straw. Let us go back to that abundance that was Egypt. And God is angry with them. There is no going back. This is a summons to seek a homeland. To seek a homeland not to be obtained by effort or exertion nor earthly means. It is a summons to call to mind that that country which we have set out from is not the one to which we are returning. We are pilgrims on a journey. And we are advancing in the words of the psalmist from strength to strength, going from pool of water to pool of water until we come to ocean's edge. Until we have received that fullness of the love and grace of God in Christ Jesus that we have here in sample by sacrament and by scripture by drinking these little tastes of the love of God in baptism supper fellowship of the saints teaching and preaching of the word we have our thirsts awakened to say i want home i want the home that these sweet things speak of i want the home in the full reality where family and friends are united in love i'm seeking the homeland and i cannot go back i cannot turn back and he sums up then in verse 16 now they that desire a better that is a heavenly country their hearts were enlarged to desire their minds were illumined to seek And their lives were conformed to this reality. In this estate of sin and misery, I am now a stranger. And I'm looking for a home. In this world of earthly ambition and energy, I am a pilgrim. Recognizing that all I accomplish is a breath. Passing away like a sigh. Like an exhale. But now I desire something better, something permanent, something lasting, something that I don't have to leave when I turn 18, something I don't have to sell when I'm too old to mow the lawn, something that I don't have to move away from because it doesn't fit my growing family anymore. I want a home. Something I dwell in, belong in. A space that gives meaning to who I am. A space on which I can impress the reality of who I am. Something better, lasting and permanent. A heavenly reality. A spiritual truth. This is what they were seeking. Why was Abraham, Isaac and Jacob content with a hole in the ground? Because they knew it wasn't about dirt in the Middle East. And I would love for us to stop killing people over dirt in the Middle East. Because even Abraham and Isaac and Jacob understood it wasn't about the dirt. They desired something better than land between the Jordan and the Red Sea. They desired a heavenly country, they desired a better place. How much more should our hearts. Who through sacrament and scripture can behold the promises. Not merely spoken. But accomplished. Fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And now being applied through these means of grace. That those instruments. Sacraments and scripture and fellow saints. Through which we see Jesus are the very same instruments that carry us into that better country. They are that road on which we pilgrims journey and bring us into glory. Therefore, therefore, since this earthly life exists, to awaken in us a heavenly ambition, therefore, Since this earthly life exists to provide us with the spectacles of sacrament and scripture. To see from afar the better heavenly home that Christ is making for us. Therefore, since we who live by faith in this reality know that we will die in faith in that reality. God is not ashamed to be called their God. In many ways, it would make more sense and it would be easier to preach if he had said, Therefore, they were not ashamed to have God as their God. That makes sense to me. I can preach that to you. Because my God. He's preparing a home for me in heaven. I'm not ashamed to see him in sacrament and in scripture. I'm not ashamed to study him closely. To love him deeply. And to conform my life to his word and command. I'm not ashamed to say plainly, this is not my home. I'm seeking a home. And I know the road to it. It's in the word and it's in the sacraments. I'm not ashamed to call to mind that I could go back to sin and misery. But for no end and no purpose. And so I will not. I'm not ashamed to say I desire something better and heavenly. But that's not what the Holy Spirit says. He says to the breaking of all our hearts. God. God. Is not ashamed to be called their God. There are two things I want you to grasp about that sentence, that phrase. God is not ashamed to be called their God. The first is the incredible condescension of God, his humiliation. God was not embarrassed to be known by the name of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God, who is glorious and majestic beyond your imagination, who is far above the highest heavens, is not ashamed to be known as the God of 1st RP of Cambridge. How extraordinary the meekness of our God, that He should be willing to make Himself known through guys like you and me, and not be ashamed to reveal His grace or His glory. Through us. The other thing I want you to see. Is the verb is. God. Is. Not. Ashamed. Why is it is. Because Abraham's not dead. Because Isaac and Jacob are not dead. Because when God appeared to Moses. In the burning bush. He said to Moses and to Israel, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're here with me. And this is the exact verse that Jesus grabs in the New Testament to prove the resurrection of the dead. Have you not read, he says to the Sadducees, how God in the burning bush declared to Israel, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Beloved, we who live by faith die in faith. And it's a faith worth having. For we have a God who is preparing for us a home in heaven. He is not ashamed to be called our God. He is not ashamed to reveal His grace and His glory in sinners such as us. And He is not ashamed to welcome us home. As he did our fathers. For indeed. He has prepared. A city. For them. Our worship service began with a call to worship. From Revelation 21. For the city that he prepared. For Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Was not Jerusalem. That David conquered. But Jerusalem that Jesus lowers. From the highest heavens. To miserable earth. The new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, adorned as a bride, he has prepared this city for us. For you. Beloved, I love these verses. Do you love these verses? Amen. Are, Are you sure of what you just heard? This is true. I'm gonna die. And then I'm going to live forever. Do you embrace that truth? And say that's going to organize my week. And do you confess? Do you order your life that way? I have a home. And I'm not going to live like it's here. I'm going to live like it's there. Love it. let's so live. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful day. We thank you for this hour of worship. Time to set aside all the cares of this week, all the sins of these hearts, all the fears of these minds, and to sing your word. To offer up our prayers to you, to administer your sacraments according to your command, to read your word and to hear it preached. And we give you thanks for this moment in which we have heard these precious verses opened to us. And we pray, Father, that they would be real to us. That we would believe what we have heard and that we would love and live these things. Father, have mercy. That we would walk in the light of this truth to the praise of your precious name. in that name we pray. Amen.